0: Hey, Podcast Community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to MilwaukeeMafia.com Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Waldrikens.
1: I'm Gavin Schmidt.
0: And Gavin, take her away.
1: All right, so uh, just a heads up. Uh, Eric, you should already know this, but if you don't, this is our last regular episode of the season. Okay. Did you know so, that?
0: No, I didn't know that. Okay. We This had been discussed. Yes. But, but this is going to happen.
1: Yes. So, the next four episodes, they're going to be short. Okay. They're going to be 15 minutes tops. Taking a little break for about a month, and then we'll be back with these nice long one you like editing so much <laughs> but for today we've got part two of our story from last week uh do you remember our story from last week
0: it was the frank aiello
1: okay you do very good so we're calling this death in the family 2 part 2 this is the story of angelo la mancha so just to get everybody caught up frank aiello playing cards he shot through the window while he's playing cards. He's dead. Nobody really knows why he was targeted. Everybody says he was a good guy. He wasn't a bootlegger or anybody. But uh, he did dele-
0: deliver bootlegged beer.
1: Sometimes he did. alcohol, I should yep, say. sometimes he did. And everybody sort of pointed the finger at his brother-in-law, Angelo La Mancha, who they didn't get along for a variety of reasons. Uh, basically family, internal family stuff. Not really mob stuff, but... Whatever. We're now at the point, okay, Franco Yellow's dead. Angelo LaMantia cannot be found. It turns out, even though he was not in Milwaukee, Lamancha had actually not gone very far. He went 30 miles south. Wow. <laughs> to the city of Racine. And he actually had a very good, uh, good-sized bootlegging operation going on in Racine with his buddy, John Messina, who I think is mentioned in the first half, but if not, John Messina is... Uh, The guys who are running things for him in Racine. Uh, He's working out of a garage on Elbert Street. And I don't really know where Elbert Street is, but if anyone's in Racine, they probably know. They're working out of here. So Lamancha, Messina, and another man named Mike Oliveri, who also used to be uh, a member of the Joe Aiello gang. Um, But again, no relation between Joe Aiello and Frank Aiello, despite the fact they're both part of the story. And so Mike Oliveri was another member of this same gang that La Mancha was part of in Chicago, and he had been active in uh, bombing various places in Chicago, and bombing places with him was a man who later on becomes the head of a Teamsters union in Milwaukee, so eventually we'll get back to him, but that's all beside the point here. We're, that, I'm off on a tangent. <laughs> well, anyway, so they're in their hideout on Elbert Street, and... They're remodeling it, because they want to turn this not into just a place where you come and you pick up your beer, but you can actually have a nice dinner, too. So they're remodeling it into a restaurant, and they have yet another partner there, a man named Dominic Zizzo, who is kind of doing the remodeling for them. Well, it's August 22nd, 1931. It's 11 o'clock at night, roughly the same time that Frank Yellow was shot. What do you suppose happens? I'm thinking he gets shot. Who? Uh, the dem- terrible with
0: names, the, the brother-in-law.
1: Or no. no. No, somebody else. Somebody else. Gunfire comes in through the front window of the Elbert Street uh, residence, uh, restaurant, whatever it might be. It kills John Messina instantly. The assailants had used shotguns, pistols, and a machine gun on the home. Police also found three sticks of dynamite with a 10-inch fuse that were wrapped in copies of the newspaper, but the dynamite did not go off. So, on top of pistol, shotguns, and a machine gun, they were going to blow the place <laughs> up, too. Really, somebody had a problem with them. So, they
0: they only killed, what
1: What did you say his name was? John Messina? John Messina.
0: Yeah, but based on the firepower, they had they intended on killing just about everybody within the vicinity of the
1: property. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, he might
0: have just been a casualty of this, and not even the intended target, or the main intended target, possibly?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so none of the neighbors claimed that they saw or heard anything, as usual. Um, And his landlord, uh, the person who actually owned the property, was telling police, well, I I don't know any enemies that he had. So, you know, the same old story. Didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. Everybody liked him. Uh, An informant later said that the killer was probably a man named Black Joe from Kansas City. Uh, He did not further identify this Black Joe, and I do not know who that would be. So, if, if somebody knows more about 1930s Kansas City mobsters named Black Joe, I mean, let me know, because I have no idea.
0: And did this informant have any sort of evidence to suggest that this was a viable possibility, or was he just saying, oh, yeah, it was it was Black Joe that did it? Who knows? <laughs> you don't, They don't have any record of that, basically? Well,
1: I mean, they didn't know who Black Joe was, so how reliable the information is, who knows? They didn't end up catching this guy.
0: Okay.
1: Well, Angelo La Mancha, uh, you know, he's already left Milwaukee and now his Racine place is blown up. So he flees again. This time he goes to Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, He's joined there by John Romano, who is either his brother-in-law or his cousin or both. Um, It's kind of hard to tell. Um, His sister is married to a man named Joe Romano, so it might be his brother-in-law. But his mother's maiden name is Romano, so he has cousins named Romano. And it's possible that his sister married her cousin. I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, so this guy, um, so they're in Ohio. But anyway, the next day, Racine police, they found evidence that one of Messina's companions was injured. A bloodstained coat with a bullet hole in the back was found in a nearby yard. A loaded revolver was found in another yard the district attorney speculated that Messina had hooked up with the recently broken booze ring in Rockford that had caused many of Rockford's early mob figures to serve time in Leavenworth prison. Men such as Tony Musso, Peter Sanfilippo, Paul Giovingo, and so on. None of these names really matter. But, uh, but a whole bunch of guys, altogether 40 men, were caught bootlegging in Rockford and, and got caught. There were two separate gangs in Rockford. One was backed by Tony Musso, and the other was backed by Paul Giovingo, and Musso's side eventually won. Um, We may eventually talk about Tony Musso more, because he was, before he was in Rockford, he was a mob boss in Madison, but he ended up leaving Madison um, after he assaulted a young woman. So, So if we ever talk about Madison, we'll probably talk about Tony Musso. But you, you kind of lost me with
0: the Rockford connection. So yeah. What what are the – is the Racine police saying that this gang was broken up in Rockford and then some of the people came down to Racine and this guy caught up with this – what is it, John Messina?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Started working with them to become – Yes. A, a, in a Racine production, I guess. Yes. Type, type thing. That
1: may have been confusing. Thank you for asking. Um Yeah, so they're looking into evidence They're trying to figure out who killed John Messina. And they've now found another, uh, a bloody coat with a bullet hole. Not John Messina's coat, just another person's bloody coat. And this is the speculation that somehow Racine is tied into this Rockford gang. Whether this is true or not, I have no idea. But this is the speculation. So they kind of uh, look into that angle for a while. About a week after the Messina murder, bootlegger Alan Robinson goes to the police. He said he had been on the spot for the last few days. On the spot means he was targeted by other guys. He was on the spot for the last few days and been ordered to leave town or else. Acting on Robinson's tip, the police and prohibition agents raided four stills that held a a combined capacity of 1,000 gallons and was valued at $20,000. Two men were arrested who just happened to stop in while it was being raided. Nobody else (laughs) was there. Robinson also directed police to a depot in North Racine where alcohol was mixed and shipped out of a garage. He claimed to have run alcohol as far as Iowa and said that Capone's men were trying to dominate Racine. Whether this is true or not, I do not know. There were later reports that Robinson was not actually a bootlegger, but he was an undercover prohibition agent who was pretending to be a bootlegger to get information around town. I also don't know if this is true. (laughs) A lot of speculation.
0: Now, would like an undercover prohibition agent, would that have been something more on the federal level? That's definitely on the federal level. Okay, yeah, because at this point, right, I think we discussed this in the last episode, that Milwaukee cops just don't care.
1: Milwaukee cops don't care. Racine cops, I don't know, but probably similar. And this this is 1931. We're getting down towards the end of prohibition. And they don't know, you know, they don't know that it's the end of prohibition. But it's been going on for 10 years at this point, and most of, the, most of the police are just sick of it. That evening, somebody calls the police and says, Meet us down at Elbert Street in half an hour, and we'll shoot it out. So 20 officers and a prohibition agent go, jump into 10 automobiles and drive to the location. Police spent an hour searching yards and alleys but could not find the anonymous caller. One agent insisted that the call had not been a prank because it had come from a significant phone number. It did not say who. A couple people were arrested and questioned, but let go. Only one man was actually given any ticket at all. And I include this in here because it's funny, not because it's important. <laughs> Earl Sass, who is only 16, he was taken down to police headquarters for hurling tomatoes at the officers <laughs> while they were raiding these places. So the only person out of this to get in any trouble is some teenager... Yelling at the police, throwing tomatoes. So John Messina's death brought prohibition agents to Racine, like, flies on you-know-what. The, the agents had found out that a local sheet metal company was manufacturing stills and and selling them off to the bootleggers, uh, which, yeah, borderline illegal. I mean, there's, there's no alcohol involved, but you kind of know no when someone's buying a still. What doing with them. <laughs> yeah, so they were able to do that, uh, cl- shut them down. And after this, they said, oh, we've delivered the death blow. There's not going to be any more bootlegging in town. You guys can't have your stills anymore. They did also find a man with a 500-gallon still named Steve Arato, or Arato, I'm not sure. I'm probably saying that terribly wrong, um, who was in Racine, but was actually from Milwaukee. And the only reason I bring up Steve, because he's not really majorly important, but he's got a grandson by the same name, who I can't really talk about because he's still alive, (laughs) But uh even more notorious than uh this guy because he was involved in uh, I, don't, I shouldn't even say involved with, but he was uh connected to two different homicides in Nino, Wisconsin. Really? Yes.
0: Well, yeah, that could come up on Fox City's murder. It, oh it, well it well, really couldn't because he's still
1: alive. Right. that's why I'm being really vague about this. <laughs> like it's that's totally true. I mean it's front page news. Like I I'm not I'm not telling anything that people don't know but uh he he may not appreciate that okay now a hundred prohibition agents i don't know how they found a hundred but a hundred prohibition agents swarm into racine and simultaneously raid 37 establishments arresting 52 men they find several truckloads of beer gin wine and whiskey they arrest a former alderman they also arrest uh, a man whose wife was found tending bar with her six children, getting the, getting the kids in the family business there.
0: This question has very little to do with this story, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Do you have any idea, like, based on the way you're describing these raids, yeah. they sound pretty huge. Yes. Like, was this a massive takedown of, of prohibition at this point, or is this something that was happening every day? Where they would go in and arrest 52 people for-
1: My to, impression is that this is huge.
0: This was a significant- This thing. is
1: huge. Like what's happening in these couple months here in Racine, I'm not aware of anything similar happening in oh. Milwaukee or Madison. Um, I couldn't speak to Chicago or New York. I don't. I have no idea. But at least like in my limited, what I'm aware of. A hundred agents raiding a city, that's just not normal. Not normal at all. No, so this is this is massive, the way they're cracking down on this all of a sudden. Things seem to have quieted down, but then three men fired a double-barreled shotgun at an unknown man in a coupe parked in front of the Avalon Cafe on Elbert Street. Again, Elbert Street. Just before 10 p.m., this is a few months later. Police said it was a sequel to the John Messina slaying. The victim ran inside the Avalon Cafe for a moment, and a bartender observed blood pouring down the right side of the man's head. He had seen the man before, but he didn't know his name. A check at local hospitals by police revealed no recent patients with head wounds. The double-barreled shotgun was found in the snow by detectives. Two discharged cartridges were found nearby. The injured man was believed to be Dominic Zizzo, one of the partners of La Mancha and Messina. He's one, he was one of the few remaining Italian bootleggers of any prominence. His car was found with broken windows and blood inside, which is why the police thought that he was the one who was shot. Zizzo also happened to own the home that Messina was in at the time of the murder, as you may recall, making the connection stronger. However, when police questioned Zizzo, he said he had been home all night, and friends often borrowed his car. <laughs> I don't know who was borrowing my car. I don't know who got shot and was bleeding all over and broke my windshield. Could have been anybody.
0: Honestly, though, that at that point in time, mm-hmm. that probably wasn't that uncommon of a thing for people to be sharing cars left and right. Because I bet you just at this point in time, not that many people had vehicles.
1: And that's true. You're absolutely right. I would still hope you'd know who was driving it's, your car. Yeah, very true, but... <laughs> but yes, you're right. You're definitely right. We're running low on guys here. The uh, bootlegging's kind of drying up. You might remember Pete La Mancha, who was possibly Angela La Mancha's brother. He was another guy kind of... Loosely connected to this group. Well, he was wanted in Sicily for a murder, but he never ended up facing the courts there. He escaped from federal custody and moved to California. Before long, he was allegedly killed by rival gangsters and his body was dumped. We don't know for sure. I can find no record of his death. So exactly what happened to him, I do not know. Angelo La Mancha, our main character this week, finally returns to Milwaukee after hiding out in New Jersey... On January 26, 1940, to face charges for the murder of his brother-in-law.
0: Which would be Frank.
1: Which would be Frank. Frank Aiello. Thank you. Thank you. They did not end up serving the murder charges on him, however. He had been gone for almost nine years, and police decided there's just no way we're going to win this in court after nine years. Years. It's not going to work. So they didn't even bother charging him. They instead said, you know, we'd like to question you about it just to see what you know and he agreed to that so he sat down for a chat with the police he said that he had been born in the same village in sicily as john messina so they had known each other their entire lives they came to america in 1922 he first lived in brooklyn he then came to chicago this is where he met his wife and her father and ended up moving to milwaukee with them in about 1928 or 29 Lamancha said he did not remember the date or the year that he was married. He didn't remember who the witnesses were at his wedding, but he recalled moving on after his wedding to Youngstown, Ohio. He was pretty sure he got married in Waukegan by the Justice of the Peace. <laughs> after that, they stayed in a hotel and were seen for one day before they went to Ohio. Well, in Ohio, he said he operated a fruit stand with uh, some friends of his. He could not recall the street that he lived on in Ohio, but knew that it was the house he lived in had six rooms. After six months there. His wife, Josephine, Franka Yellow's sister, she becomes pregnant, so they return to Milwaukee. She could be closer to her family. Lamancha did not recall his son's birthday. He thought that it was probably in 1930. It might have been February 12th. And he knew that his son's name was John. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, which, uh, for the record, his son's name is John. Or was John. He's passed now. Was John. And he was born February 12th. So he did guess correctly. Kind of makes you wonder, like,
0: what was going on in the dude's head that he couldn't remember any of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, can't remember the road you lived on? (laughs) That's bizarre.
1: Mm -hmm. LaMancha said that when he returned to Milwaukee, he tried to operate a flour business. Flour like baking bread, not like flowers. But he was losing money, so he closed the shop after two months. He then went into a business selling soda and cigarettes with Frank LaGalvo, which we might remember from last time. He recalled there being a waitress there, but he did not know her name. He said he left Milwaukee because he was, quote, so disgusted with the city of Milwaukee. And he left in a car owned by his cousin or brother-in-law, Joe Romano. He drove to St. Paul, stayed for a short time, and then went to Philadelphia. While in Philadelphia... He lived on Allegheny Street. He knew where he was this time. (laughs) He lived there two years and then moved to another apartment. And he remembered that his landlord's name was Shapiro. So he's a member of pieces here. Well, in Philadelphia, he used the alias of Joe Rizzo allegedly because he had a record for bootlegging in Chicago and he did not want people to know this. Rizzo was the name of a boy that he went to school with. He next moved to Broad Street in the back of a tailor shop owned by a man named Rocky. He stayed there for two years before moving again, this time with a landlord who was a German mechanic. Finally, he moved into a rooming house owned by an older woman. While there, he would work as a presser for a frock service for seven years. Where he would iron garments and stuff. He had briefly worked in New Jersey, but the work dried up. So all this going, all this running around, jumping jobs, cities, all this stuff. So some of it he remembers, some of it do, he doesn't. He's always on the move. The police showed La Mancha the sawed-off shotgun that had killed Frank Aiello and told him that the weapon came from the home of his father-in-law, Isidore Aiello. La Mancha denied sawing the gun. He denied killing Frank Aiello and he denied killing anybody. He was shown two shotgun shells, but he denied filling them. They also prevented evidence to him that he had purchased a marriage license in Waukegan, but had never actually had the marriage performed. <laughs> La Mancha said, well, as far as I know, I'm married. When asked about Pete La Mancha he said the rumors of his murder were false. Pete had actually died in Buenos Aires about a year after he escaped from the authorities. So his story now is that uh, his brother or cousin or whatever he is, actually went to Argentina, of all places. Which, Was-
0: I- which actually does make sense, because Argentina is a very Italian place. Yes. So.
1: Yes. So the Milwaukee authorities declined to prosecute La Mancha, even after this interrogation. He runs down his whole life story, they're like, okay, you know, even though you were very good at talking to us, like, you didn't admit to the murder, and we just can't do it after nine years, we don't have any real evidence or witnesses or anything. So they declined to prosecute him. But it did... His arrest did capture the attention of police in Pittsburgh. <laughs> he had been identified by eyewitnesses as one of two men who murdered Russian sugar dealer Morris Curran, or Curran in front of his home on June 24, 1931. This is shortly after the Ayello murder. He then threw... Whoever the killer was then threw the smoking gun in the dead man's face. The other gunman was identified by eyewitnesses as Pete La Mancha, So Angela was booked for murder, sent to Pittsburgh, and sat in jail awaiting trial there. Uh, for more on uh, the sugar dealer who was killed, I recommend the book Prohibition Pittsburgh from History Press. I recommend it partially because they're one of my publishers, so, and that's cool. But also, um, it's, someone did a really good job of of running through who this guy is. Um, why he would have been a target and, you know, who he was supplying in the different gangs and um, in Pittsburgh, which is way outside the scope of this podcast. So I'm not going to even get into that. But if you're interested in organized crime in Pittsburgh, hey, there you go. Prohibition Pittsburgh. A prison term for La Mancha was not in the cards. On May 13th, his defense attorney asked the judge to drop all charges after the four original eyewitnesses, who were schoolgirls at the time, could no longer recognize the alleged killer. Which, again, this is about nine years later, so not super surprising. The judge agreed, and La Mancha was released. He was cleared of all charges in Pittsburgh and Milwaukee and anywhere else he might have been wanted. And Angela La Mancha never returned to Milwaukee. Clara, now Clara was Frank Aiello's wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Her family continues to live in the very same house that he was killed in, at least up through 1977. So I don't know. I don't know if they did after that, but I know for a fact they did, at least did for another like 45 years. The family still lived in that same house. Angela LaManch and his wife moved to Arlington Heights, Illinois. They raised a family. They had two sons, John previously mentioned, and Isidore. They both became real estate men. The funeral for Josephine was held in 1965 in Arlington Heights, and there were many notable mobsters there. Uh, from Milwaukee, after his wife died, La Mancha moved to Brazil in 1977, where he lived until 1985 and died. Later informants would point the finger actually at La Mancha's business partner, Jack Inea, for murdering Frank Aiello, not La Mancha. They claimed that Frank's brother, Vito Aiello, would later kill Jack Inea. In revenge, and of course, we'll later get to the murder of Jackie Nea. Um, so it may not even have been Lomancha at all, as it turns out. But but his his buddy, this Jackie Jackie Nea, yeah,
0: yeah, and he was the guy that was running everything down in Racine.
1: No, no, no. We got sorry. so many names. Yeah, no, sorry. that's that's John Messina. <laughs> Jackie- yeah, but there
0: was a third guy down in seeing too, it. sure. There?
1: Well, Jackie didn't come up this week at all. Okay, um, he came up a little bit last week because he's buddies with La Mancha and Frank Legalbo, who ran the soda parlor or saloon or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, and he, um, both he and Legelbo have connections to Madison, and Inea's got connections to guys in Minneapolis. And his father-in-law was a, a black-hand letter writer in Ohio. I mean, so these guys are all connected to everybody. It's a, it's a whole mess. Um, and we'll definitely go into more detail on Jackie Nea. Um, not too too much longer, probably.
0: D- does Jackie Nea have uh, any motivation to kill Frank?
1: The informant says that he did it because Lamancha asked him to. He okay. had no personal reason so to do it. So, La
0: Mancha it. killed him, well, <laughs> I mean, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: but but that's, like, you know, it's one thing like when the mob boss tells you to kill something, but like when your business partner tells you to kill someone, like that's kind of it's a bold move.
0: <laughs> so, and kind of based on what you talked about in this story, this La Mancha when he. You know, his gaps in memory of where he was leaving, Mm -hmm. living and stuff like that, I assume that's just because he's trying to cover for somebody. Like, when he doesn't remember anything about Ohio, well, that's because he was down there making alcohol with some guy living in the house where they were making alcohol, and that guy was probably still making alcohol and wanted to cover for him. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: I mean, that would be speculation on my Uh, part. It would be complete
0: speculation. But but yes, but but yes,
1: I, I... I tend to agree with what you're saying. Um, I I don't doubt that some of it he doesn't remember because, I mean, he's on the move constantly and he probably doesn't really care. But but yeah, he clearly, he, he's leaving parts out. He's he's saying and he's telling the police enough that he's talking to the policeman like, yeah, it was here, 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 and here. But he's not really telling them anything. Like none of that is useful.
0: Yeah, and the fact that, in Pittsburgh, he may have killed the sugar producer or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Which didn't that, even
1: come up in his story at all.
0: Right. And that directly connects him to having some sort of alcohol connection in Pennsylvania. Because if right. he killed a sugar producer, we don't know that he did, but let's just say he did. Right. He was obviously making alcohol in Philadelphia as well.
1: Right. So... Yeah. I mean... I mean, he was definitely connected to some gang there if he's, if he's, I mean, he's not just going to randomly kill the guy. Yeah. Right. Yes.
0: And it would just be way too ironic to just randomly kill a sugar producer. Right. (laughs) You know?
1: (laughs) No. And, and so I kind of skimmed over, I did cause it's like I said, it's, it's so beyond the point, but like the, the, the guy is shot, the prohibition Pittsburgh guy, he's shot. And then not long after him, like his, primary rival. <laughs> this, I left this out and I shouldn't because this is pretty nasty. His rival not long after is tortured and murdered in his own basement while his six-year-old daughter is upstairs. Awful. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So somebody... His wife taking, is at
1: church at the time.
0: So somebody's taking down the sugar industry in Philly for some reason. It's kind of weird that they would kill both of them off. Don't they? But, but
1: But it's... It's like I don't think it was the same killer. I think it was revenge for killing okay. the one guy.
0: It's like one gang killed one yeah. person sugar producer, and then the other gang yeah, killed you killed our sugar supplier, so we're going to kill yours your sugar supplier. Gotcha. Yeah. interesting. Well, we got a good book tip too. So, what was that book again? So, everybody that's can...
1: uh Prohibition, Prohibition Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh from uh, available from History Press, and yeah, I mean it's not a it's not a huge book. You know, it's like 150 pages, so it's a it's solid. It'll give you what you want to know. But and, it won't take you all year to read,
0: and it's probably the only book written on the subject. I'm guessing, or Oof. pretty close.
1: Y- you know, I'm not an expert on Pittsburgh, but uh, <laughs> it's it's definitely probably one of the few. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so the good little tidbit there. Yeah. So. All right, um, so this, we're pretty much wrapped up. I feel bad for Frank Aiello. He never yeah. got us justice.
1: No, he did not. And
0: we still don't really even know why he was killed. No, I mean,
1: if, if the informant is correct, I mean, it really just did come down to personal differences. Which is a really stupid reason. Yeah. You know.
0: I mean, just don't talk to the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, and... Do you kind of want to give an idea of what these upcoming four episodes on our little break yeah. are going to be covering?
1: Yeah, so uh the next four are their, their mailbag.
0: Their mailbag. Yeah. W- did we suddenly get this onslaught of emails? Well,
1: we got we got a couple. We got cool. a couple. So yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to take some questions that uh that we got and and give some answers and they're not they're not like huge question they're not going to require an hour so i should be able to answer them in you know 10 minutes or something so um they're not much but just something to you know to keep listeners listening while uh take a little break
0: yeah and once again we thank everybody for tuning in i'm shocked that we're already through one season of this show
1: yeah and i mean it's kind of arbitrary how long a season is yeah but yeah i mean
0: we just kind of made it up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's still 26 episodes, right?
1: 26, 27, something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so all right. Um, you want to go ahead and hit them with some contact info?
1: Absolutely. Uh, if you do have a question for the mailbag, uh, go to milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can go to the website, com and you'll find all the writing an information that I have that isn't in books. If it's in books, you got to get the book, but otherwise I put it on the website. And uh, yeah, I, there's something else too. What's what's the other one? Facebook? Oh yeah, Maybe. Facebook. Fa- the uh, People love contacting me on Facebook. Yes, if you go to facebook.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, you'll also find me on Facebook.
0: Or just Google Milwaukee Mafia.
1: Google Milwaukee Mafia. I mean, not not all ten top results are me, but like six of them are. So <laughs> it's a pretty good way to do it. See, g-
0: little do you know, Gavin is an SEO wizard, and Justin, I am. he learned how to game Google completely.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm beaten by Wikipedia, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and Wikipedia probably references everything you wrote anyway, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, and as usual, if you like what you hear from us, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, and we will be back with four short episodes coming up over the next four weeks, and then we'll be back in full swing next month. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.